So, uh, no small subject, I'm afraid, today. Um, are we really free is the question in our part two of election and predestination. Uh, before I, I kind of get into what's, uh, well, I mean, I suppose the, the question's really there, but I'm going to give you some caveats, I suppose, before we begin. Um, when I go through this, I'm specifically going through what I understand freedom to be or free will to be in terms of what the Bible teaches. And the, the natural desire of all of us is to read into other things if you say one thing, if you might understand what I'm saying. If I believe a certain thing about what, who God is in particular specific subject, uh, our, desire, our, our natural reaction is to infer certain things about what my, I believe about other things. Uh, and the problem with that is that I'm not talking about those other things, I'm talking about this thing. And so the best thing to do is if you think that maybe you come to a conclusion and think, well, if you believe that, then you must believe. Come and ask me about it, okay? <laughs> come and ask me if that's what I believe. If that's what you think, I'm, I'm okay that you think it. I'm okay that you come to that conclusion, but please ask me about it. I only say this because I've seen this so often in these particular subjects, in that people run away with what the preacher, the pastor, the teacher might be saying that they're not saying. Does that make sense? And so I, I just give that warning, first of all, that we have to be really careful here about what I am saying and what I'm not saying at all. Uh, and the other stuff will come uh, as we continue to learn from the Bible. So today is what is free will? And we look at this subject uh, of do we really make choices or are they preordained? Uh, do we have free will or is it an illusion we've created in our minds? Or are we really just following a pattern that's already been laid out for us? Again, no small thing to talk about, right? So in order to get going and in order to ground us right, we have to understand that whatever we might believe about free will, it does have a limitation in what free will is. There's always going to be a limitation. And what it comes down to is what people think that limitation is of what the Bible says it is. And I'm going to try and explain how I perceive from the word what I think free will is and how God operates and allows us to operate within a certain framework. So let's start as we did last week. Oh, I was meant to do that. As we did last week, we started with Genesis. And this one is Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. Now, what, why this verse? I hope we can all agree that it would not be possible for us to be created because we chose to. That makes sense? We couldn't choose to be created. Uh, in other words, before humans were created, we were non-existent and therefore unable to freely choose to create ourselves into existence. And I think that would be fair, wouldn't it? A non-existent being cannot choose itself to be created. That would seem logical, wouldn't it? And, but the reason that's important is because whatever we believe free will to be, it cannot make something happen that is not possible. And here, I hope, is a helpful example. In as much as someone wanted to believe they could jump from a plane without a parachute and not die or not be seriously hurt, does not change the fact they will be. And unfortunately, this guy clearly uh, did not think that actually 
I can jump out of a plane and I'll be okay. Uh, obviously, I don't know what happened to him. Uh, and he clearly has tried to manifest, is the term of the day, a sense of, well, if I decide it's okay, then clearly I can fly and I can land and I can jump from a plane and not, not die. And unfortunately, that's where free will has its limitations. According to some, though, in, in the current day, there's this word that I've just used, and it's a, it's a dangerous word, but it's being used also in Christianity. And, and there, is a, there is a place for it if it's, a, if it's attributed to God. But this word manifest is a really dangerous word when applied to us. When it's applied to us as people that can manifest something as if we are able to create something, in this particular context, could we, and the manifest, manifesting thing, this is where it applies, even if it's not true, as long as I manifest it to be true, then I'll believe it's true. Does that make sense? This is the, this is the objective and subjective truth. This is whether I believe, like this guy, that if I jump out of a plane without a parachute, I can, well, effectively, I can fly. I can land softly and everything will be okay. Or I accept that gravity exists and without a parachute, I will die. That's objective truth. That's just truth. You will die if you jump out of a plane without a parachute. And so this word manifest needs to be, needs to be carefully used as we, even when we pray and when we think about things, God manifests stuff. He can do that and he has done that. He's created things, but only he can do that. And I, I saw this, um, I think it was Dragon's Den I saw recently, and they had uh, this topic of manifest and someone was trying to sell them these diaries and all these great things which i believe is helpful well-being stuff always good mental health stuff always good one of the things they said is oh you 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 do the manifest stuff you you manifest things so you write down i'm going to manifest that i'm going to build a business and it's going to be worth millions and millions of pounds and i'm going and i'm going to do that and it's just going to happen because i wrote in a book once but that's dangerous, isn't it? Because when you look behind what that's doing is you're, you're claiming you can create that yourself. You can do that, and it's all down to you that you can do that. And yet God is in total control of the universe. The danger here is a lack of submission, a lack of submission to a holy God who has set the rules, who has set the parameters to begin with. Let's give you another example here in John. John 6, 36, but as I told you, you've seen me and still do not believe. So this is in the context of choosing, my free will to choose Jesus. And uh, Jesus clearly points out here, uh, or the verse points out, that I said to you that you've seen me and yet do not believe, giving us this idea that we cannot believe in Jesus, that we can choose to not believe who he is. But just because someone chooses to believe that God does not exist, does not mean he doesn't. For in order to know the possibility that God doesn't exist, we must by logic know all things about everything in order to make that choice truthful, to make it fact. Would you agree? I would need to basically have the same knowledge as God because I would need all the evidence of the entire universe, all the knowledge of the universe, of human life from beginning to end, to know whether something, especially about God, was true. Because then it's tested. Then I know I have all the facts. I have all everything given to me. I'm right there. But 
the last time I checked, I'm, I'm sure I didn't know everything. I'm pretty sure I didn't know the beginning and the end of the universe. I'm pretty sure I didn't even know certain facts about useless things. So here's what we can do. Here's what happens. I can deny Jesus. I can say, I don't believe in you. Anyone can say they don't believe in him. But it doesn't make it true that God doesn't exist and that Jesus is not who he says he is. In fact, when we look at the very core of the scientific method, as we help to, it helps us to understand universe, the true scientific method gathers as many facts as possible and tests those facts. It says, can we test our theories against the, the truth of what we know, what we see around us, and so we test it. But even then, no matter how much we can gather or test those facts, it is never 100%. So based on what we can know, we have to make a determination. We have to come to a conclusion. What we need to establish here is that while free will might be possible, it cannot go any further than its definition. Here is the dictionary meaning of free will, the power of acting without the constraint of necessity or fate, the ability to act at one's own discretion. Probably an accurate description uh, of free will, I would say. Um, and it's saying it, it means that it doesn't mean that free will has no consequence. It's saying free will does have consequence. But what I'm doing is in this meaning, I'm saying that it doesn't constrain me if I just decide whatever I want at my own discretion, whatever I want to do. From a secular perspective is, is to act as if it doesn't. And we see that today. People make choices and do things as if it doesn't have an impact on them. And we see this in objective and subjective truth. People say, well, I want my truth, and, but that's okay because you can have your truth as if those things are never going to collide. And yet we only have to look in social media and the news to find that someone's made up stuff has a direct impact on the whole world, on everyone else. As a God, as God the creator of the universe, nothing that man does is outside of his knowledge or his plans. Everything, no matter if it does good or bad, will frustrate God. Psalm 33, 10 and 11. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thoughts the purposes of the peoples, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. Now, does that mean that God has already made the decision of what everyone will decide and make them decide that, or is his plan fulfilled despite choices? Maybe yes to both, right? Maybe. Maybe no and yes, maybe yes and no. But I believe the clue is in the text. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. Always a good tip. Reread the verse that you're about to base some belief on, some fact on. Reread the verses that you're looking at and look at every single word. The Lord foils the plans. You know what's happened already? Man has made some plans. 
Man has made some choices, he's made some decisions, he's put together a plan. God has allowed that in his grace. God has allowed that to happen. He's allowed us to start with, what he's allowed to start with is the nations to plan at all. He's allowed them to make these plans. And that means he's allowed humans to make choices of our own free will. Imagine how much goes into planning anything. But in this case, even though it's against what God wants, he allows them to make plans anyway. This is called grace, which I'm going to talk about later. It's called grace. When it came to Moses in Egypt and freeing God's people, Pharaoh was allowed to plan. He was allowed to deceive Moses. He was allowed to lie to Moses. He was even to carry out those plans to a limited degree. And those plans went against, uh, uh, by appearance, what God had planned and ultimately carried out. What I'm trying to say is that free will can and should only be defined in its freedom in as much as God has defined that freedom. Ultimately, we still need to acknowledge that God is sovereign. God knows all things and is everywhere all at once. Which means we cannot escape the conclusion that whilst we do have free will, it is still within God's grace and ability to limit, to control that free will. It is still possible for God to have view and control over all things, despite what we may do. So here's how well I view how that free will, how, it, how is it defined? How does it work? So rather than God needing me to make a, set of, a certain set of decisions in order that his plan is carried out, he is able to see and does see and knows every possible choice and decision I have made. But in all those choices, he has a plan for every possible decision I have made and will make in the future. Do I have free choice? Do we have free choice? Yes. But as God created everything and knows all things, he knows the outcome of every possible choice I could possibly make. And he has a plan to make it work towards his plan. And we see that in the Bible, right? We see even God's people going against him. And yet while God is frustrated, and we, you can read Amos, by the way, and see God's pain and frustration and anger towards his people, does he wipe them out? No, he doesn't. Grace. But he lets them have the consequences of their actions. He lets them experience what that means when you go against the holy God. Of course, God still has to be holy. Colossians 1, 16 to 17, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. doesn't matter how far we think we're going outside of God's plan. I had someone here many years ago. He was a great guy. Uh, he, didn't, he wasn't a believer, but he came and he kept coming. 
And I said to him, there was a sermon I did, and I can't remember the exact title, but I said to him, God can outdo you. No matter how many decisions you make to be away from him, he will always outdo you. He will always outthink you, and he'll always know where you're going to go. And he said, oh, I bet he won't. I don't know where he is now, by the way. I don't know what happened to him. But I'm still going to stick with the fact that I think he, he didn't know better. That God knows better. But as a friendly warning, I did it with love and grace. Say, look, I know you think you're going to outwit him. But it's, it's just not going to happen. It's just not going to be a reality. Um, there's this uh, picture I've put up here. Um, it's a map. It's from a film. Uh, it's one of the films we're doing in the film club later in the year, um, and it's called Adjustment Bureau. And it's an interesting film, interesting concept uh, of someone called a chairman, supposedly a chairman, whatever that means, who sits, who you never see, and he's got this amazing plan uh, for people. And what he does, he, he's got agents on the ground, and he kind of gets them to interfere, as it were, with people's plans, to the point even where uh, what they do is they freeze time, and they go around scanning people's brains and kind of getting them to do what they want them, what he wants them to do. The, the concept is entirely flawed from a Christian perspective. Let me tell you that. The chairman is not God by any means. And if you, I'm not going to spoil the end of the film, but when you see the end of the film as a Christian, you go, okay, this is just messed up. It doesn't even make sense. But there's a point to this map. We might imagine that God has a map of the entire universe in terms of human will and decision. And on this map, every possible route is accounted for. Every possible decision we could make, he is able to track every choice and decision we have made and will make. And so the film is a poor example, but this map is helpful to, to illustrate a point. God has the entire decision tree of mankind mapped out. He knows where they can go, and he has to, because he holds all things together. The only way he could hold all things together is he knows all things, and therefore if he knows everything we could do and do, then some might say, as my example of the guy that used to come here, well, I could just go off-road. I just try to go off map. I try and outwit God. I try and dodge what he's trying to do. I'll surprise him. I'm really good at that. But here's the problem. When we look at this map uh, of the UK, we could go anywhere we want. And some might say, well, you know what? God doesn't know where I'm going to go. I'm going to try and do, I'm going to try and so outwit him that I'm going to just surprise him. I'm not going to go to the same usual places I go. I'm going to just try and keep surprising him, keep shocking him. He's going to have to keep trying to do something to stop me from doing X, Y, and Z. Here is the problem. You can still only go somewhere in the UK. These are the boundaries by which this has been defined. They say, well, what if I travel all over the world? What if I go anywhere I want? What if I just try and... Just so God can't anticipate my next move. Here's the problem. You're confined to the world's land and sea of which he created. I'll go anywhere in the universe. 
He will never find me. He'll never know what I'm doing. I'll find a place and I'll go there and he'll never know where I'm going to go. I won't say anything. I won't tell anyone. I'll outwit him. The problem is you're confined to the universe of which he created. It doesn't matter in our beliefs where we think we might be outdoing God. If God has created the very parameters by which we live in, then he knows all things. He knows the universe from the end, from the beginning to the end. He knows time from the beginning to the end. So it doesn't matter how far we might zoom out and explore all the possible choices we could make and think, oh, I'm going to catch him out. He won't know I'm doing this. Nothing is outside the view and plans of God, for it is him that created the thing that you're doing this in. And so why does this matter? It matters that we correctly define free will when it comes to election and predestination as our wider subject. And a common debate among teachers and scholars is, do we have the moral ability to choose Christ? and turn away from sin? Are we so dead that we cannot make a choice? And it is totally in God's hands at the very beginning to choose some and not others. Do we have the ability to respond through free choice to the gospel of grace positively? Let's look at Romans 5, this will help us. Verse 12, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. So we committed sin and death came to us. But the question is, does that remove moral ability to respond positively to the gospel? Does death mean a literal inability to respond? Well, we know that when Adam and Eve sinned, they continued to live, right? We know that they died spiritually in a relationship with God. That died most certainly. But it didn't remove their ability to make choices. They were still able to choose. In fact, God says for every person, uh, the moral law is written on our heart. So it would suggest we can make moral choices, moral decisions, even toward God. Verse 15. In Romans 5, it says, but the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man. How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Now, here's where some might get tricky and say, well, many doesn't mean all. But many does mean all. Because remember, everyone is a sinner because of Adam so the many is all because there's not some that didn't fall to that sin. There's not some who didn't inherit that sin. We all inherited. Human, mankind, inherited the sin of Adam. So then how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to all? Grace. The important thing to establish here is that salvation through Christ is a gift to mankind. And now, of course, this in context is that something being gifted to someone, you, you receive a gift from somebody. 
So we then have to ask the question, if this is a gift and I cannot accept the gift due to our inability to accept it, then why would scripture speak of it being a gift? Sounds like to me the concept, the definition of gift is something that I can take, accept or reject. You can have the most awful Christmas present and if you're bold enough, say thank you, but no thank you. I've never done it and I never will. But I have that option and actually, by the way, we may have done it in our minds, right? We may have thought, yeah, thank you, and put it away and never see it ever again. So we can do that, by the way. We can seemingly be nice and polite, but really we can reject that gift, even if we accept it in front of them. So what I mean by that is if, if I have no moral ability to respond to the gospel, then God either puts it in me or not. He either chooses me or he doesn't. And the problem with that is twofold. Firstly, in regard to the context of a gift, it must be uh, able to be accepted or rejected by the one who receives it. Remember, the fact that God made it a gift is in itself made possible, possible by God's grace. It is God's grace that makes it possible for me to decide if I want to choose or reject it. And we go on to verse 17 that says, For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So secondly, that provision of grace allows me to choose him. And remember, grace is for all people so that they might come to Christ. It's, it's not to make me choose him, that is what makes the gift not only a gift, but the best gift we can ever be given. The joy is in God's gracious act of allowing me to choose him over the world. It forms a basis of a really healthy, non-transactional relationship. It is not that I did anything. It is by God's grace that I can enter into his presence and he allows me to live in this grace in order that I may accept him as my Lord and Saviour. That's amazing grace. That's a non-transactional relationship. God does all the work, all the saving, all the grace. Everything is done by him. But by his grace, he does allow me to make a choice. It's all on God to have done all that was required and show us what he offers us despite our state. Despite the state we're in, he still says, here is my son that died for you for your sins. And by grace you have been saved because he died for your sins. And what's happened is you have been reconciled. So now I live in grace, but that grace is not going to save me. What I need to do is now accept salvation. Grace is kind of this holding area. If you're trying to describe it, I don't know how to describe grace. It's amazing. We kind of sit in this holding area, every single person. And now it's, do I accept saving grace, as in moving from common grace to salvation? Or do I sit in this temporary period, and when the time comes, 
Will I go to hell? Will I go to heaven? Will I choose him or choose the world? But remember I said last week that reading verses in context is so fundamentally important. So we even have to go back, when reading Romans 5, we have to go back to Romans 4 because of how Romans 5 started. 22 to 25 says, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus uh, our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justifications. Justification. For us who believe in him. You're only raised to salvation when you put your trust in Jesus. Continues then back into Romans 5, 1 to 2. Therefore, so you see why it's starting for? Because we're starting with a therefore. What we said before, because of what I said, here's my conclusion. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. How were we justified? By faith. That's trust, in other words, confidence. How do we gain access to peace with God? It was by faith into his grace in which we now stand. And I have to say this because grace can get really confusing. I understand that the concept that there might be a kind of grace in grace. There is a, what some call a common grace. And I kind of understand this even better than I did before in that sense. There is a common grace where all people sin. That Jesus came to die on a cross for the sins of every single person. Not just believers, sins were paid for for every single person. However, that does not mean universalism. It does not mean by that act, non-believers are saved. So everyone who's, who's non-believer sits in this kind of common grace. God is giving common grace to all people in order that they might step into the grace of God and be saved. Told you this wasn't going to be easy. We believe in Jesus, which gave us access into his grace, and that it is only through trust in Christ in which we are saved. And so to that point, Romans 5 verse 6, you see at just the right time, when we're still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. So that's all sinners, that's every single person. Christ died for the ungodly. And what he did was he repaired the relationship. He repaired removed the barrier between us and God by dying on the cross for sin. Verses 9 to 11. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? How much more through him if I believe in him? hope that is clear. Verse 10. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through death of his son. That's the first part. Reconciled to God. The relationship is repaired so that I may approach him. And that I'm, I'm allowed to approach him because of his son dying for my sin and everybody's sin. How much more then, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? That is to take the next step and to believe in the son. 
believe in Jesus Christ. Verse 11. Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Now, Jesus pays the price of our sin, even in our rebellion, and even in our sin, we are reconciled. We have a way to approach God. Only through Jesus can we get to the Father. But then he ups the ante. How much more then, having been reconciled, having that relationship repaired, even in our sinfulness, shall we then be saved? And so here God makes a way for all people to come to him. But only if they choose Jesus will they be saved. Jesus made the way for reconciliation, but I am required to use my free choice to have faith in him to be saved. I trust in him, and when I trust in him, God is doing everything, has done everything for me to be saved. My choice merely is just choosing to trust him. Not just reconcile, but to enjoy the fruits of this amazing reconciliation. And then we have Ephesians 2 that chimes in nicely with Romans 5. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgression. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, trust, my choice to choose. And this is not from yourselves. The work of salvation is not from me. But I choose to trust in him and he will do the work of salvation for me. Does that make sense? My choice has no actual salvific power. But all God is asking me to do is trust in the one that does have salvific power who will, by his promise, fulfill the promise if I trust in him. It's not from yourselves, it's a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, creating Christ Jesus to good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It is by grace we have been saved. And what is required is our decision to agree with it. The most important thing, and certainly as Christians, our mission is this use of free will that everyone has, this free choice that everyone has. We want them to use it to choose Jesus. Would you agree? They can choose all the other stuff. They can do whatever they want in that sense. But you know what? When you choose Jesus, your life changes. And it is changing every day. As God reveals to you what needs to be corrected, what needs to be taken out of your life, what you need to introduce into your life. And so this is the amazing beauty of God's grace of being able to choose to believe in him and trust in him. If you believe in Jesus... It's not you that is the centre of attention. We used to do that, remember? As people who weren't believers, we made ourselves the centre of attention. We love it. You see it in the world today. That Almost our purpose seems to be in the world, that people make themselves the centre of attention. 
We don't do that anymore. That's, it's not for us. It's the glory to God. It is a display of God's almighty power to overcome sin by the death of his son and for that to be reflected in the people that put their faith in him for their salvation. That's the amazing story. And it's almost like when people see us, when we have these conversations, and, and yeah, you know, it may not be a great conversation, but it may be a long one over many weeks and months and years. But I can almost picture it like this, that we kind of become translucent in how we appear. And what they really see is God. So we're kind of getting out of the way. When we fully trust in Jesus, they're not seeing us anymore. They're hearing through the Holy Spirit, hopefully, what God has done in our lives. And now it's not about me. They don't want my life. They want what God wants for them. So I'm going to leave you with this verse. I have to warn you, this verse is lightly... Uh, to bring up, actually the last one, I'd say this last one actually brings up more questions. Uh, the whole thing of God prepared in advance for us to do, oh, that opens a whole other thing. What does that mean? Are the works already set? Does that mean all my choices are made? That's a whole different context. So I'm going to just warn you there, that doesn't relate to free will, okay? That's a whole other thing. But I'm going to leave with this verse that hopefully is encouraging, uh, and we can just glorify God. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we who have unveiled faces, all reflect that the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That is what God is about. Are we ready to be used by God's glory, as it were, God's mission? That I don't want to stand in the way, but I certainly want to be on mission for God. I certainly want to see people come to Jesus. But I don't want to be the reason they come to Jesus. Far too dangerous is the, per, is the reason why people come to Jesus is because they like or, or have some unhealthy relationship, some unhealthy idolizing of the person who told them about Jesus. We need to sense when that happens and we need to quickly reflect it back to God, glorify him. He is the one that does it. We're going to pray and then more worship together.